This is a Scream Queen production. I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is So Dead Podcast. Happy True Crime Tuesday, Deadheads! I've got a disclaimer for today's episode. Uh, if you were at the last So Dead Live show, you've heard this one already. Kinda. Um, a version of it. So we were not able to record the last live show like we've been able to do in the past. And this one is such a good story that I wanted to be able to share it with all of you, uh, even those that weren't able to make it to the live show. So today I'm going to be telling you guys about the trunk murder mystery of 1920. For those of you that were at the live show and are getting ready to turn this episode off, pause. This is an extended version of the story, so there are a lot of new details that we didn't talk about at the live show, and I mean, you know, if you were there, you know, live shows are a bit different um, because there's people talking, there's a lot going on, it's easy to get distracted, so you're going to hear some new stuff you probably didn't catch the first time around. It's definitely worth another listen. The trunk murder mystery actually begins in New York City on July 23rd, 1920. It was mid-morning at the Grand Central Terminal of the American Railway Express Company. Workers in the unclaimed baggage department on the third floor of the warehouse noticed an objectionable smell coming from a trunk that had been sitting unclaimed for over a month. The trunk was bulging at the seams and wrapped tightly with cheap clothesline rope. It was roughly four feet long, two feet deep, and two feet wide. According to the address label, it was from an A.A. Tatum of 105 Harper Avenue in Detroit, Michigan. It was simply addressed to James Douglas, New York City, New York. It had been shipped out of Michigan's Central Depot in Detroit on June 10, 1920. A few days later, it arrived at the train station located on the corner of 33rd Street and 11th Avenue in New York City. It was there for a few days, but when no one picked it up, it was sent over to the unclaimed baggage warehouse on June 17th, where it sat, in an unair conditioned building, in the middle of summer, for over a month. So yeah, I would say it probably smelled pretty objectionable by the time employees of the rail company carried it down to the ground floor of the warehouse to their boss's office, where delivery foreman David Demarest cut through the rope and opened the lid. A decision he likely regretted for the rest of his life. Inside was a shell of a human body. And not like an emotional shell, like a literal shell of a body. The torso had been split open from the pelvis to the chin, and all of the internal organs had been removed. Both legs had been broken at the knees to make the body fit into the trunk in a strange S-like shape. The victim's tongue had been cut out, and the head had been bent back at the neck so that it was facing up, with the victim's face pressed into the side of the box and the nose crushed. The body was so badly mutilated that authorities couldn't tell at first whether it was male or female. Despite this, initial reports stated there were no obvious marks of violence on the body. Uh, okay. So the body was covered with newspaper. It was the December 9th and 10th editions of the Detroit News and a shawl-like cloth. Stuffed in the lining of the trunk, as though to keep the body from moving, were a white blanket with blue stripes and a Turkish towel, both covered in blood. 
There were several items of clothing in the trunk as well. There was a men's suit jacket, a blue flannel shirt, and a black fedora. There was also a dark blue women's skirt, a rose-colored sweater jacket and belt, a long blue cape, and a women's black straw hat with a black feather. So the contents of the trunk left no clue as to whether the body belonged to a man or a woman. Um, The scene was photographed and fingerprinted, and then the body, still in the trunk, was sent to the morgue for an autopsy. The medical examiner couldn't perform an autopsy, though, because the body was missing its internal organs. Only the brain was still intact. According to the medical examiner, the body had been sliced open with a jagged saw. The organs and tongue were likely removed to hide the cause of death, and due to the precision with which this was done, the medical examiner speculated that it was done by someone in the medical field. Not a surgeon, but possibly a physician or a medical student. Aside from the ripped open torso, missing tongue, and broken legs, there were no other marks or cuts on the body and no signs of injury to the skull. It was determined that the victim was a woman between the ages of 25 and 30, roughly 100 pounds, 5 foot 1, blue eyes with long dark brown hair. She appeared to be well cared for, Her teeth were in perfect shape, aside from two of her top left teeth being a bit crooked. Authorities believe that the woman was likely killed at home, either in bed or getting ready for bed, as she didn't have any combs or pins in her hair, and there were no shoes, stockings, underwear, or corsets in the box. So, I guess they assumed that the women's clothing in the box was what she'd been wearing when she was killed, um, which, I guess, women slept in skirts, capes, and feather hats in 1920. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but a lot of this doesn't make a lot of sense to me, to be quite honest with you. By the time the autopsy was complete, a crowd so large had gathered waiting for news that the police had to be called in to disperse them. After the autopsy, the medical examiner gave a statement to reporters. He said, at this time, I cannot say whether she was murdered or not. I say, what the fuck? Are you serious? The description of the not-necessarily-murdered woman found in the trunk apparently fit a number of missing girls around the country, and tips began to pour in. A man by the name of Harry Brown from South Buffalo called police to report that he was sure the body in the trunk belonged to his 36-year-old daughter Louise, who he had not seen in five weeks. According to Brown, he'd had a premonition during a dream. He told officials, In my dream, I saw a trunk the cover of which was slowly lifted by invisible hands, and my eyes rested upon my daughter's body crunched inside. Then I awoke with a start. The next day I read of the findings of the woman's body in the trunk. So, clearly, he saw the future. Um, Brown didn't believe that the trunk had actually come from Detroit. He said that it had been in New York the whole time and that his daughter's slaying was due to jealousy for him, a weird statement that he did not elaborate on at all. Um, He claimed to have enemies so dangerous it was necessary for him to carry a handgun at all times. The newspaper uh, described him this way. I love this probably mostly because it rhymes. Um, and because it's a bit savage. They said, he lives alone with his cat as a playmate and the weapon as his bedmate. (laughs) Anyway, I just love that. Um, So not surprisingly, the body in the trunk did not belong to Harry Brown's daughter, Louise. Another man called the NYPD to report that he believed the woman might be Mary Abrams of Toronto. She was about the same age and had the same two crooked top teeth. Mary and her husband Roy had moved to Detroit earlier that year and hadn't been heard from since. 
But it wasn't Mary in the trunk either. And I mean, that was a bit more solid of a lead. That wasn't some kook with a gun for a bedmate. That was a man that said, hey, I know a lady that kind of looks like that that's missing. You know, that that's a solid tip, but it wasn't her. Police in Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania, suspected the body might be that of 20-year-old Catherine Dan, who disappeared with her older sister Ida and Italian immigrant Alphonse Talafroni in early 1920. The three had relocated to Detroit, and they even lived on Harper Avenue, which is where the trunk was shipped from. Um, and when Ida and Alphonse were arrested in June of 1920 for violating what was called the White Slave Act, which is a horrible name for an act, but actually had to do with um, sex trafficking, they were arrested on charges, and Catherine, the younger sister, was nowhere to be found. So they thought maybe that was her in the box. Um, but upon further investigation, it was discovered that the trio had lived at 1265 Harper Avenue, not 105 Harper Avenue, and that Catherine had been spotted sometime after June 16th sneaking back into the house to retrieve her furs. So she couldn't be the body in the trunk because by June 16th, the trunk was already in New York City. But if it wasn't any of these women, who was it? Um, Police did have two pretty big clues from that return address label. They had the name A.A. Tatum and the address 105 Harper Avenue, Detroit. The NYPD contacted the Detroit police who sent detectives to that address looking for A.A. Tatum. 105 Harper Avenue was a large apartment house known as the Wadena Apartments, managed by a woman named Lottie Brooks. Lottie told detectives that she'd never heard of an A.A. Tatum, but she'd recently had a couple of tenants that disappeared shortly after moving in. She said that on June 7th, Eugene and Catherine Leroy, a young couple who claimed to be from Chicago, had applied to move into one of her suites. She asked for a copy of their marriage license. Eugene promised he would get it to her soon, and she gave them a set of keys. A few days later, she saw Eugene packing up all of his belongings, including two large locked trunks. She asked where he was going, and he said that his wife had fallen ill and gone away, and he was going to follow her. Lottie asked for a forwarding address, and Eugene gave her an address in Sheboygan, which is located at the very tippy top of the mitten. Um, a short time later, a courier who went by the name Lemon, or Lemon if you're fancy, showed up and took away the larger of the two trunks bound for the Detroit Depot. Fun fact, courier Lemon disappeared sometime around July 1st and was long gone by the time authorities started looking to question him about the trunk. They never did find him. Eugene Leroy left with the smaller of the two trunks and a couple of other bags, and Lottie never heard from him again. The tenant that moved into the Leroy's suite shortly after the couple disappeared told police that she saw Lottie scrubbing a dark stain from the floor, but Lottie always denied this. The search was on for Eugene Leroy, who was described as between 23 and 24 years old, 5 foot 11, 145 pounds, with a smooth face and a swarthy complexion. He had jet black hair that he combed straight back, good even teeth, it said in the paper. Um, teeth were a big thing back then, apparently. A good way to identify people, which I guess, I guess, I guess that makes sense. I guess that makes sense. Um, you know, dental care wasn't a huge thing in 1920, so people's teeth probably were pretty jank and easy to use to identify them back then. Um, he also had a large scar on his left leg. He spoke perfect English, but had an unmistakable South American accent. A Detroit police officer by the name of Leo Trumbull came forward with the information that he knew the Leroy's. 
They had been boarders at his home for a brief time and made friends with him and his wife, Marie. According to Marie Trumbull, she met Catherine Leroy at the Interurban Hotel on the corner of Woodward and Jefferson Avenues in Detroit in the fall of 1919. They became fast friends and introduced each other to their significant others. About two weeks later, Eugene and Catherine announced that they had gotten married. The Trumbulls, who ran a boarding house, knew that the Leroys were tired of staying at the hotel and were looking for a place to live, so they offered them a room. Catherine Leroy told her new friend that she'd been married before while living in Birmingham. She said that the marriage was an unhappy one and she was determined to do things differently this time. But things didn't really work out that way. Within a few months, Catherine began confiding in Marie that she was terrified of her new husband, who often got violent with her. She once told Marie, I'd leave him tomorrow, but I am afraid he would kill me. One time, the women were out shopping together when Catherine purchased a bottle of chloroform. Is that not crazy to think that you could just walk into a store and purchase chloroform whenever you wanted? Marie found out the next day that Catherine had used it to try to kill herself after catching Eugene with another woman. So things were not good between the Leroys, and it was looking more and more like Catherine Leroy might be the body in the box, and Eugene Leroy might be her killer. Back in New York, where the trunk murder mystery was all anyone could talk about, a courier by the name of Andrew Brannock contacted police. He knew Eugene Leroy, only he knew him initially under the name O.J. Wood. In January of 1920, O.J. Wood sent Brannock a letter with instructions to have a trunk shipped from New York to his new address at the YMCA in Detroit, but to use the name Eugene Leroy to send it to him. Several months later, in June of 1920, he received a letter from a different man by the name of A.A. Tatum. This letter said, Your express was recommended to me by a former patron. I am sending my trunk to you prepaid. Will you please get the trunk and hold it until I come? I will pay cartage and storage when I arrive. That trunk, of course, was the trunk that contained the mutilated corpse. Andrew Brannock tried on three different occasions to pick up the package, because he didn't know that it was a dead fucking body, but the rail workers were unable to locate it. When he heard about the murder and heard the names Eugene Leroy and A.A. Tatum connected with the case, he got out both letters and found that the handwriting was identical. He turned the letters over to police who suspected that Eugene Leroy and A.A. Tatum were one in the same. In an attempt to positively identify the body in the box as that of Catherine Leroy, police in New York sent the personal effects from the trunk to police in Detroit for identification. Catherine's friend Marie Trumbull confirmed that the rose-colored sweater jacket was hers. She'd lent it to Catherine many times. She also recognized the blue suit as Eugene's. Lottie Brooks, the landlord at the Wadena Apartments, identified the bloody blanket as one from her building. Sure now that the body in the trunk belonged to Catherine Leroy, authorities sent Marie and Leo Trumbull from Detroit to New York City to identify the body, which they did on July 28, 1920, five days after the body was discovered. So now police knew for sure who the body in the box was, and they even knew where she'd been murdered, at 105 Harper Avenue in Detroit but they didn't know why or how, and they still didn't know where Eugene Leroy was. In the days following the murder, men around the country were arrested on suspicion of being the suddenly infamous Eugene Leroy, O.J. Tatum, nope, Eugene Leroy, O.J. Wood, A.A. Tatum. 
It was determined that Leroy's handwriting was nearly identical to that of another man as well, P.P. Pulverer, who was wanted for questioning in the murder of a war veteran in New York City in 1919. In the early morning hours of August 14th, the body of a young man was found in his room on the 15th floor at the Hotel McAlpin in New York City. He'd been bludgeoned to death with a candelabra. His shoes, socks, collar, and tie were missing, and he only had 25 cents on his person. The man was quickly identified as Cecil E. Landon, a 21-year-old U.S. Army sergeant from Oregon who had recently returned from a tour in France. And when I say recently, his ship, the Great Northern, had arrived at a port in New York City just days before his death. He'd barely had time to send a letter to his parents letting them know that he'd made it back to the U.S. safely, Um, He'd made some plans to visit some friends in Waterton, New York, and he had collected the $300 in back pay owed to him by the Army, and that was about all he accomplished, before he was targeted by what was known as a Broadway floater. Broadway floaters were scam artists that targeted the newly returned servicemen, knowing that they usually had large sums of cash on them. So... There was this big port in New York City. The soldiers would come in. They would get their effects in order in New York before they would go home, which included collecting their back pay. So they'd get this big wad of cash, stick it in their pocket, and be headed out of state. And this is where these Broadway floaters would catch them. They would get them to join them at a restaurant or a bar or a hotel, and then they would drug them and rob them. And this is what authorities determined happened to Cecil Landon. He'd last been seen the morning of August 14th, uh, 1919, by another soldier, and he had $300 in his back pocket. It's believed that he encountered one of these Broadway floaters a short time later, a man who identified himself as Pulverer. The two registered separately, but at the same time, at the Hotel McAlpin. Within a few hours, Cecil Landon was dead, P.P. Pulverer had disappeared, P.P. Sorry, I had to. And so had Cecil Landon's money. P.P. Pulverer was every bit as fake as it sounds, um, and police had zero leads in the case until a year later when these letters from Eugene Leroy showed up bearing the same handwriting as was found on P.P. Pulverer's hotel registration. I just said P.P. so many times, you guys. I can't handle it. (laughs) Okay, anyway, back to our search for Eugene Leroy. Um, On July 25, 1920, Roy Millen of Chicago, a former Army aviator, was arrested at a downtown hotel after an anonymous tip was called in saying he matched Leroy's description. Officer Leo Tremble, one of Eugene Leroy's only known acquaintances, was sent to identify him. It turned out that the man in custody actually looked nothing like Leroy. In Lawrence, Kansas, a man said to match Leroy's description was arrested on July 28. Officer Tremble again failed to make a positive identification. In Allentown, Pennsylvania, a man by the name of William Leroy, alias Roy Leroe, William Leroy, Roy Leroe, like you couldn't get more creative than that. Um, This man was arrested on suspicion of being Eugene Leroy as well. Uh, That did not pan out either. In Saltillo, Mexico, which I probably just pronounced wrong, uh, a man looking for work gave one of Leroy's aliases as his name on July 29th. The governor of Michigan quickly began the process of sending officials down to Mexico to question him. But again, it wasn't him. Why was Eugene Leroy so hard to track down? Because, as it turns out, Eugene Leroy did not exist. And for that matter, neither did Catherine Leroy. Catherine Leroy was actually Katie Lou Fondren, 
a 19-year-old little baby from the small farming town of Sturgis, Mississippi. So they said they thought she was, you know, 20s, early 30s. She was fucking 19. And when I say small town, um, in 1920, Sturgis, Mississippi had a population of 40. That's four zero people. Katie Lou was born in 1901 to Hampton and Luella Fondren and had two brothers. Her father died when she was seven. And then on May 26, 1918, at the age of 17, Katie Lou, who also went by Kitty, married her childhood sweetheart, Kid McCoy Jackson, a local farmer who was also 17. Can we pause for one second? Kid and Katie Lou Jackson. No, Kid and Katie Lou McCoy Jackson. Those are the cutest names. I think I need to get pets. No more dogs. I already have two of those and no cats. I'm not a cat person. Something. Not hamsters because vermin freak me out. Uh, Fish. Maybe fish. Something. And I need to name them Kid and Katie Lou McCoy because I love those names. Anyway, uh, the union between Kid and Katie Lou was not a happy one. And in six months' time, um, Katie took off. Her husband later told reporters, The town was too small for Kitty, and she went away. That's a terrible, terrible accent. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, She moved to Nashville, and she got a job in a local restaurant, and then promptly got sick of the city life and returned home to her husband after about three months. In April of 1919, almost a year into Kitty's marriage, when she was just 18, her mother passed away. This sent Katie Lou out into the big wide world again in May of 1919. Kid assumed she'd come back home after a few months. Um, They never did legally divorce, but he never saw her again. She traveled to Birmingham, Alabama, where she met and fell in love with a man by the name of... Are you ready for this? Alan A. Tatum. That's right, guys. Uh, A. A. Tatum, that name on the return address label from the trunk, was a real person, not just another alias of Eugene Leroy's. Katie Lou and Tatum saw one another sporadically as she continued to bounce around the country. Her family couldn't keep track of her. Uh, Neither could Alan Tatum. She would reach out to her family from time to time, even to her estranged husband. She would send letters to Tatum, and he would send her money. She went back to Nashville for a while and then eventually turned up in Detroit, where she met the man she knew as Eugene Leroy in fall of 1919 when they were both guests at the Interurban Hotel. Eugene Leroy was actually Oscar J. Fernandez, or O.J. Fernandez, a South American immigrant who had been a federal airplane inspector in Texas. In New York, he was known as O.J. Wood until, under that name, He was involved in an accident in Brooklyn in July of 1919 that left a man dead and possibly then murdered Cecil Landon before booking it out. That same month, he was sentenced to Tombs Prison for stealing Liberty Bonds and jewelry. So, I mean, right around the time that Cecil Landon was murdered, um, this man had killed someone accidentally um, and been sentenced to prison because he was a con man um, and he was a robber. So, you know... I don't know. It's looking pretty good there um, that he could have been also this P.P. Pulverer. P.P. Uh, he was let out on parole, and he promptly fled the state, reportedly leaving behind a wife and a two-year-old child. He then began calling himself Eugene Leroy, and within a few months, he settled in Detroit, and he set his sights on Katie Lou Fondren Jackson, 
who, uh, let me mention, um, she went by several names herself. She went by Catherine, Katie, Katie Lou, Kitty, Kitty Lou, and used her maiden name, Fondren, as well as the last name Dixon, which was just completely made up, um, the last name McCoy, which was actually her husband's middle name, and then her married last name Jackson, before settling on Catherine Leroy, which was what she was calling herself when she died, even though her marriage to Eugene Leroy wasn't legal for so many reasons. Eugene Leroy was said to be a clever, level-headed man who loved good times and lots of women. Acquaintances found it hard to believe that he would have one wife, let alone two wives at the same time. He traveled all over North and South America. He knew how to fly planes. He had connections in the aviation world. He was said to have family members in the Mexican consulate, um, and he spoke English, Spanish, and Yiddish fluently. He was a jewel thief and a con man and possibly a murderer. This guy was not leading a double life. He was leading like seven lives here. He was an international man of mystery. But even this was not enough to hold Catherine's interest. Once settled in Detroit, Catherine sent for Alan Tatum in Birmingham. She wrote him letters daily, professing her love and begging him to visit her. And he did. He visited several times, the last of which was at the beginning of June 1920. It was only during this trip that Catherine told him she was married to Eugene Leroy, who she referred to as the jealousest boy. I mean, I feel like most husbands don't like their wives to be in love with ex-boyfriends. I don't know if that makes him the jealousest boy or just, you know, a human. But anyway, yeah, so she admitted to him that she was married. Um, and she was, <laughs> but she wasn't married to Eugene Leroy. She'd never told him that she was legally married to Kid McCoy Jackson the entire time that she had known him and that that was her actual husband. So to understand what happened in June of 1920, we need to do this chronologically because it all happened very quickly. On June 1st, Catherine confided in her friend Marie that she was pregnant. Whether the baby was Eugene Leroy's, Alan Tatum's, or someone else's entirely is unclear. The only person who definitely wasn't the father of Catherine's baby was her poor husband back home in Mississippi, Kid McCoy Jackson. About this same time, Catherine contacted Alan Tatum in Alabama and begged him to visit. She told him she was ill and under the care of a doctor, but did not tell him that she was expecting. Alan made the trip to Detroit, and he last saw Catherine on June 5th. They spent some time together, and then he returned to his hotel and waited for Catherine to contact him again. According to him, she never did. Four days later, on June 9th, Catherine told Marie that she was going to leave Eugene and go back to Alabama with Alan Tatum. She said she was going to break the news. Wow, I can't talk, sorry. She said she was going to break the news to Eugene that night and would call Marie in the morning to update her on the situation. But Catherine never called. The following day, June 10th, landlord Lottie Brooks saw Eugene leaving town with two large trunks. One of those trunks, which was picked up by a courier, who later disappeared, and taken to the Detroit Depot for transit to New York, contained Catherine's mutilated body. Once all of these pieces were put together, the motive was pretty clear. Catherine told Eugene she was leaving him, and he murdered her. But did he know about the baby? Is that why he removed all of her internal organs? And let's talk about those internal organs for a moment, and that second trunk that Eugene was seen with the day that he disappeared, shall we? 
Police theorized that the second trunk contained Catherine's innards. That trunk, which was smaller than the other, was not shipped through the American Railway Express Company. It was a checked bag attached to a railway ticket to Chicago that Leroy had purchased. Um, so, you know, when you fly or when you take a train, you take your suitcase, you check, you buy your ticket and you purchase, you know, your checked bag with it. And that's what this was. So police believed that he was traveling physically with this one. And so they thought that if they could track that trunk, they would be able to find Eugene Leroy. Maybe. Hopefully. But this guy was always at least one step ahead of them, if not several. On June 15th, the delivery of a mysterious trunk was attempted at a home in Birmingham, Alabama. It had an address on it, but was not made out to any specific person. The occupant of the home turned the men away because the trunk might have a body in it. Um, Two things that are important to take note of here. This happened over a month before Catherine's body was found in New York. So the suspicion that the trunk contained a body was pretty out of place. And Birmingham is Alan Tatum's hometown. So this was just another way to connect the murder to him by sending the vital organs to the town he lived in and possibly to someone he knew. When police found out about this in late July, uh, they tried in vain to track down that second trunk, but they were never able to locate it, even though two employees working the receiving dock remembered seeing the trunk when it arrived um, through the train station and said that it had a very foul smell to it. Catherine's first husband, Kid McCoy Jackson, and her brother, L.A. Fondren, sent a telegram to New York claiming Catherine's body and asked to have it shipped to them in Mississippi. Officials denied the request because the investigation was still ongoing. They kept the remains until September 10, 1920, when they buried Catherine in a potter's field in New York City. So I'm not really sure what happened there. If the family changed their mind about claiming Catherine's remains when this truth of how she was living came out, or if they couldn't afford to have the body transported, or if they simply were not given a choice, you know, by the powers that be in New York. I don't really know why she didn't get to go back home to her little 40-person town. But either way, that's really sad that she wound up buried in a potter's field in New York City so far from home. But the search for Eugene Leroy continued, even though it was widely believed that he had escaped to South America immediately after the murder and was long gone. In December of 1921, a man identifying himself as Eamon Haywood was arrested in Sheboygan on suspicion of being Leroy. He was spotted loitering around town for several days, and when police picked him up, he was in possession of a diary with the name J.R. Wood in several of the entries, which was yet another alias used by Leroy. And remember, the forwarding address that Leroy left when he fled Detroit was a Sheboygan address. So they really thought that this one was him. All the newspapers at the time were, this is it, we've got our guy, we found him, we caught him. But those fingerprints were not a match. Um, Remember, they had lifted prints from the trunk at the time of the murder, and they did not match this Eamon Haywood. So they wouldn't let that deter them. They had one more way to identify him. They called out good old Officer Leo Trumbull again. They sent him to Sheboygan to make identification, and he determined that the man was not Eugene Leroy. On February 14, 1925, a carnival worker and former aviator by the name of Frank J. Leroy was arrested after police received a tip that the man had been using Eugene Leroy's laundry mark in Chicago. I don't know what a laundry mark is. 
I have no idea. I'm not even going to try to explain that. But basically, they thought it was him. He matched Leroy's description to a T right down to the big scar on his left leg. But as it turned out, this Leroy was in Cleveland in jail on charges of wife abandonment at the time of the murder. Um, So it couldn't be him. And then also his fingerprints didn't match the scene either. Uh, The last mention that I could find of Eugene Leroy was in 1934 when a man who resembled Leroy was arrested overseas in connection with the disappearance of his wife, Agnes Tufferson, whose body may or may not have been stuffed into a trunk. The man was Captain Ivan Potterjay, a bigamist and con man with multiple aliases that traveled the world conning and robbing people. Sound familiar? Agnes Tufferson grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, so oddly, another connection back to Michigan, in the early 1900s. By 1930, Tufferson was a successful, wealthy, not to mention very attractive, New York City attorney. She was a corporate lawyer. Uh, And in the spring of 1933, when she was 43 years old, Agnes took a trip to Europe where she met and fell in love with Ivan Potterjay a Yugoslavian army captain, 10 years her junior. They returned to New York together, and on December 4th, 1933, the two were married at the little church around the corner in New York City. One problem, Ivan Potterjay was already married, but Agnes Tufferson didn't know that. Uh, The two booked a honeymoon cruise on the SS Hamburg, which was set to depart on December 20th. Following the cruise, the couple planned to settle in England to begin their life together. On December 19th, Agnes emptied her U.S. bank accounts and called her family in Michigan to say goodbye. She was never seen or heard from again. On December 22nd, two days after the newlyweds were supposed to set sail on the SS Hamburg, Ivan Potterjay boarded the White Star Liner Olympic, sister to my favorite doomed ocean liner, the RMS Titanic. He was alone. Well, not entirely alone. He took with him a brand new brass-bound wardrobe trunk. Pause. Did you hear all those R's I just said in a row without messing them up? Do you think I can do it again? Probably not, but let's try it. A brand new brass-bound wardrobe trunk. (laughs) I did it. About 20 inches square and 3 feet 6 inches high that he'd purchased for the trip. He spent the entire voyage overseas guarding the trunk in his stateroom, even during meals, which was said to be pretty odd. In the summer of 1934, so a few months later, Agnes Tufferson's family filed a missing persons report. After not hearing from Agnes or her new husband since they supposedly left for their honeymoon, they became convinced that something awful had happened to Agnes and that Ivan Potterjay was responsible. Potterjay was arrested in Vienna in June of 1934 after Agnes's belongings were found in the new apartment that Potterjay was living in with his other wife. Traces of blood were found in the trunk as well. Police speculated that Potterjay had drugged and or killed Agnes shortly after she withdrew the money from all of her bank accounts, then loaded her body into the trunk, took it onto the ship with him, and dropped it out the porthole porthole of his stateroom once the ship was far enough out to sea. The Potter J case made international headlines, and when his photo started popping up on the front page of Detroit newspapers, I've said this line twice now, and I keep saying Destroit, Destroit. It sounds like a fancy type of water, LaCroix, Destroit. Okay, sorry, I'm sorry. The Potter J case made international headlines, and when his photo started popping up on the front page of Detroit newspapers, residents there were like, hey, 
You know who this kind of looks like? That Eugene Leroy guy that also killed his wife and stuffed her in a trunk. And I mean, maybe. I don't really see a resemblance in the pictures, but the age was about right, and so many of those details were eerily similar. It was enough of a question mark that the New York Police Department sent prints from the Leroy case to authorities in Vienna for comparison. After 14 years, they were hopeful that the trunk murder mystery would finally be solved. But once again, the fingerprints were not a match. So I just want to take a minute here to talk about how fucking stupid the fingerprint theory is. What if Eugene Leroy wore gloves when he touched the case? And so his fingerprints were not on it. That case, that trunk traveled from Detroit to New York and then sat in New York for a month. Do you know how many people touched that? How many sets of fingerprints they must have lifted from that trunk? And it's entirely possible that Eugene Leroy's prints weren't on it at all. I mean, he was a smart guy. He was a good con man. I'm, I'm quite sure that he knew that if he touched the, the trunk that they would be able to lift his fingerprints. So to me, that was just a really stupid way to try to identify the killer. But what do I know? Not a whole lot. So Eugene Leroy was never captured. Um, he was never found, nor was the trunk believed to contain Catherine's internal organs. Ivan Potterjay was extradited to the U.S. and he was sentenced to two and a half to five years for bigamy, but he was never tried for murder. Agnes Tufferson's body was never found. And that is the trunk murder mystery, or I guess the two trunk murder mysteries of Michigan. Sidebar here, guys. Uh, I live in a house that was built in 1920. And so I have a lot of antiques, including a few different antique trunks, the kind that were used for traveling back in like the 20s and 30s. And now I'm over here like, what was really in these? Because in researching this episode, I found a whole lot of stories about bodies stuffed in trunks. And I'd never considered that before. It was just like, you know, yeah, this travel trunk from 1925 is a steal. It's $25. It's going to look super cute in my living room. So much character. But now I'm over here like, what's that weird fucking smell? And what's that weird stain right there? You know? What about you guys? Anybody else have an antique trunk that you're now looking at suspiciously? Uh, Find the post for this episode on your favorite social media outlet and show me photos of your antique body transporters. My source for this week's episode was newspapers.com. Usually I'm going to cite the individual articles and you can still find a full listing of sources on the SoDead website. But here's the thing about the trunk murder mystery. Every single bit of information I found was from old newspapers from 1920. There were no modern stories about the case and I went through So many newspapers. You guys, we would be here for hours if I listed them all. Nothing about the Cecil Landon murder, other than old newspapers either. So really, this was me piecing the story together um, just from old newspapers. Uh, The Ivan Potter J case, though, that has been covered in more recent times. And so for that part of the story, I did get some information from the audiobook Missing or Murdered, The Disappearance of Agnes Tufferson by R. Barry Flowers, and also from an article on the UK website, uh, the History Press, called The Disappearance of Agnes Tufferson. All right, let's change gears here. Um, So a lot has changed here at SoDead recently, as you guys know. But one thing that hasn't changed is that I like to jump right into the meat of the episode. New time for small talk. Um, 
and at the end of the show, so no. So at the end of the show, as we're all winding down from the stress and the drama of true crime, I still want to keep that bit of something personal like we did in season one with the file dumps. Um, (laughs) Such a crude name for those. (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't know why I used that. I hate talking about poop and then I named a segment of the podcast file dumps. I don't know why I did that. Um, So anyway, here's where you guys can ask me anything. Um, There's a thread on all of the socials for questions, but you can also send your questions in a private message or an email, whatever you're comfortable with. You can ask questions about my life, about the podcast, about cases that we've covered. There's nothing that's off limits, but just send those questions in or else we'll have nothing to talk about here at the end of the show. So today's question comes from Mandy, and her question was, what is the case that keeps you up at night? Um, I would have to say that that actually varies. Um, you know, anything dealing with kids is, is hard. That's always rough. But I, I would say anything that I'm really digging into where I'm really, you know, I'm looking at photos and I'm reading everything I can find, you know, when I'm all caught up in a case, it's, it's all I can think about. And so it'll, it'll stick with me. But far and away the one that has crept its way into my dreams more than any other is the Matthew Macon case. Um, I'm hoping that subsides here soon but it's been you know there was a a time that I was planning on working on a writing project involving the case. I decided to do a podcast episode instead but that was years ago. So as far back as I would say maybe five six years ago I've been having dreams about the specifics of that case. So that's definitely definitely my one. If you guys have questions for me, send them my way, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that. Email. Send me a, send me a carrier pigeon. Send me a Harry Potter owl. I like owls. No, I don't. They can turn their heads all the way around and they freak me out. And they have those really long legs. Have you guys seen pictures of owls with their feathers pulled up? They have like these freakishly long legs. They look like aliens. Anyway, that's it. Uh, another episode of So Dead in the Books. So thank you guys so much for joining me today. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and YouTube at So Dead Podcast. Please check out the Patreon page for ways to support the show financially and benefits involved in doing that. You can find all of that at patreon.com forward slash So Dead Podcast. Be sure to visit the website, SoDeadPodcast.com, for all your SoDead merch. Um, new stuff is constantly being added as I rebuild the, the store and get new designs and all that fun stuff. As always, you can email me your feedback and story ideas to SoDeadPodcast at gmail.com. A new episode of SoDead is coming your way in a couple of weeks. Until then, keep shining, you magnificent what-the-fucks. 